There's never been a time in history, and this is no hyperbole, there's never been a time in history, and nor has there been a nation, where the issue of civil politics so dominates our discourse as it does in our nation right now. It's very simple to track local, state, and federal politics 24-7, and many do it. I've spoken with scores of professing Christians who have lots and lots of opinions on this candidate for office, that senator from a state that's 2,000 miles away, and these people seem to be very well informed about what these civil leaders should be doing. You can listen to talk radio, talk TV. You can call in and and give your ill-informed opinion, too, all the time. But whenever I ask confessing believers, do you know what the Bible says about your responsibilities as a Christian citizen? I'm usually met with a blank look. Today, what I want you to do is to commit to listen carefully for the next several minutes about how you are to take your place in a country gone mad over civil politics. And I want you to begin by looking at your copy of God's Word, 1 Peter chapter 2. And when we look at verse 13 and 14, Peter has just, in the previous two verses, in verse 11 and 12, he has just commanded his readers to deal with their internal and their external enemy. Their internal enemy, and so is yours, the great enemy of of your soul, is the flesh. And Peter is clear and stark. The believer must completely abstain from the lusts of the flesh. But that's our internal enemy. You know that we have two external enemies, the world and the evil one. Our external enemy is the world, and Peter will get to the believer's other external enemy, the evil one, so very shortly. But Peter reminds believers in verse 11 and 12 in the, the preceding context that they will be reviled, they will be hated by worldly unbelievers, and God's plan for silencing the reviling of the world is for the believer to do consistent good works. And Peter will say in our text, look carefully at verse 13 and 14. Peter will say in our text, that the specific good work that the believer is called to do, must do, in the civic realm, is to gladly, joyfully submit to the laws of the land. Now already I know that some of you are playing mental chess and saying, I don't think I like where this is going. Let me encourage you to submit yourself now to the authority of God's word, to keep your Bible open, We'll need the help and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to instruct us from the Word. Let's seek that now. O Sovereign Lord, help us today to say, just as Samuel of old said, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. How we desperately need the help of your Holy Spirit to give us a powerful word from you today. And as we hear you speaking in your Word, keep us from arrogance, which refuses to see our need of learning, Keep us from independence and resenting your perfect wisdom. Give us concentration, discernment, and holy remembrance. Through our hearing, may your church be strengthened and preserved. We pray in the name of the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
As you're looking at verse 13 and 14, you will notice this is all about how to interact with the civil magistrate. And so the first thing we have to say is God has established the office of magistrate. Seems like a very simple beginning point, and I want to begin simply. God has established the civil sphere and established the concept of the magistrate. Governmental authority did not originate by a social compact. It does not derive its power from the consent of the governed or from the power of some to make their will dominant over others. This idea of the magistrate is not of human origin, but from God. His intention, and you're not hearing me stutter in a moment, God's intention is that fallen, imperfect men are to rule over others. He has authoritatively established this idea. Only at the return of Christ will there no longer be a need for rulers. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15, and when Paul sketches out for us eschatology, he said, then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father, then he puts an end to all rule, authority, and power. Not until then can we be done with civil magistrates and politics. And so the first premise you should hear and understand, any person in power, from president to dog catcher, any person in power is there because God put them there. He is there because of the sovereign will of God. However they come by the power, however they abuse it, their authority is of God. And what I want you to do is go on a brief tour with me and hear the rest of the authors of Scripture rise up and say, yes, anyone in rule is there because God put them there. Dig back into the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 2, and if there was ever anybody who would say, boy, I'm really struggling here as a citizen under pagan rulers. I'm struggling to say that God has put this ruler in authority. Daniel chapter 2. You'll remember Daniel was taken captive as a teenager, probably somewhere around the age of 13 or 14. And he lived the rest of his long entire adult life in Babylon under pagan kings. And listen to what Daniel states about the civil magistrate. All of this, by the way, is just going to be a prep because once we get to the New Testament and the New Testament writers are living under pagan rulers, they will say much more deliberately and concisely what Daniel says. Look at Daniel 2, verse 20 and 21, when Daniel writes, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. Turn over a couple of pages to Daniel chapter 4. And what I'm going to try to do this morning is convince you by repeated biblical affirmations because our, our first impulse is to say, well, I think Carl doesn't understand the context of that verse. Or it's just one isolated verse. No, look at Daniel 4 verse 17. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. 
You're thinking, well, this is the Old Testament. Surely the New Testament sheds light on this. Great. Look at Romans 13. Peter's fellow apostle, the apostle Paul. And in Romans 13, Paul calls the magistrate God's minister, actually more literally, God's deacon, his servant. He calls the magistrate God's minister three separate times. In a very brief context, and this couldn't be unless he had his power and authority from God. And so notice how Paul begins. Well, you might want to keep a finger here because we will refer to this again momentarily. Paul begins in Romans 13, and he's writing to the church at Rome. You know, the seat of the emperor Nero. And Paul says, let every subject, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the, uh, the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, another way that we can approach this is to see the biblical titles all through Scripture that the civil magistrate is given. And the titles will stun you. For example, in Psalm 82... The psalmist calls civil magistrates gods. And Jesus quotes this text later in the Gospels. And in the same psalm, in Psalm 82, the psalmist calls civil magistrates, those who rule and are put there in place by God, sons of the Most High. And then David calls the wicked civil magistrate Saul, he calls him a father. In 1 Samuel 24, in Numbers chapter 1, a title later used of Jesus to show his relationship to the body, in Numbers, civil magistrates are called heads. Now let me stop here before I continue. When you think of what civil magistrates are called in our day by the pundits and by talk TV and talk radio, it is never, ever anything exalted or sober, or honoring, it usually begins with fool, and it goes downhill from there. Such people are not getting their cues from Scripture. Another example of a biblical title for the civil magistrate. Jeremiah, writing in a day when the civil magistrates were certainly not believers, calls the magistrate the servant of God. That's what Paul does too as well in Romans 13. But the most intriguing title that's used with great frequency in the Old Testament is the term the Lord's anointed or the Lord's Christos. This is the title that's given to the civil magistrate, the Lord's anointed. And so listen to some of the people who this title is given to. Samuel uses it of King Saul. Remember crazy King Saul? The madman King Saul? He's called the Lord's anointed. This title, the same term, is used by David of King Saul. Remember the King Saul who wanted to kill him? David calls him the Lord's anointed. And it's used frequently in First and Second Samuel. Now that's a tiny bit of background. What I want you to do is look back at our text now at 1 Peter 2.14 and I want to remind you of what every civil magistrate is to do. Look at our text and we get 
their marching orders, their mandates. It's a very simple one, by the way. For those of you who love big government, you're going to be horrifically disappointed. Because the job description for a mandate, according to God, is two very simple things. Look at 1 Peter 2.14. He tells what the magistrate is sent for by God. The first is the punishment of evildoers. Do you see that there in the text? That the ruler must maintain law and order by the exercise of force. Now, I have to point out, in case you're that one person whose head has been under a rock for the last five years, the rage, the fad in jurisprudential circles is the complete non-punishment of offenders, especially those who offend against property. And so it's very possible in many of our larger cities, even um, in smaller cities, for people to do horrific crimes against property and person and to receive zero punishment. This is the magistrate not understanding his first command by God. Look at verse 14. What is the magistrate's job description for the punishment of evildoers? Keep one finger here and look back at, at Romans 13.3. And what I want you to see is how Peter and Paul, it's though they're speaking in stereo. They both are saying the exact same thing. And at, and at, at a point, we're going to come to this, this crucial point in just a moment where you're going to say, but Carl, they're not doing their job. Look at Romans 13, where Paul echoes Peter, or Peter echoes Paul. Actually, they both echo the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul in Romans 13, 3 says, Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. If you do evil, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain, for he's God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. The believer must be militantly opposed to all anarchy, all property crimes, all crimes against person. We know what the magistrate's task is to do. It is to publish, to punish sin and crime at every occasion. God was angry with Eli because he wouldn't restrain evil and punish evil even when it was going on under his nose. We're told in 1 Samuel 3 of Eli where the Lord says, I've told him I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because even his sons have made themselves vile and he would not restrain them. So look carefully at the text. It's inescapable. The language is so plain in 1 Peter 2.14. The magistrate at every level, mayor, state official, federal official, must focus on the punishment of lawbreakers. That's job number one. Every magistrate has the charge to be of the law and order variety. I always laugh when, when men will run for office and they'll say, I'm going to be a law and order senator, president, whatever, fill in the blank. I'm thinking, well, every magistrate is to be of the law and order variety. But he must not just possess the power to punish and not use it. We're told by Peter's contemporary fellow apostle in Romans 13 
that the magistrate is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath upon him who practices evil. This isn't new. Solomon, writing a thousand years before, in Proverbs 20 says, A wise king sifts out the wicked and he brings the threshing wheel over them. You see, the scripture and biblical writers have always known this. This is the first job of the magistrate to punish crime. We know, too, that the swift execution of justice serves as a great deterrent to those who would be evildoers. Again, Solomon writes in Proverbs 19, strike a scoffer, in other words, punish evil, and the simple become wary and wise. Rulers, of course, must be men that execute justice carefully. That's why we're told in that handbook for rulers in Deuteronomy 17, you shall inquire diligently since the ruler knows that he who answers a matter before he hears the whole thing, it's folly and shame to him. And so a, a godly ruler, according to Exodus 22, will not judge until both parties are heard. We're even told of Christ, the judge, is spoken of prophetically in Isaiah 16 as one who will execute justice speedily. Rulers must be exact, dispensing pure justice. This is why, again, in Deuteronomy 16, the handbook for rulers, we're told that the ruler must be altogether just. He must not do one or two acts of symbolic justice. It must be his constant work. It must be his clothing, which he puts on every day. Hear David's last words. This is a, a dying civil magistrate. And hear his last words in 2 Samuel 23. The God of Israel, the rock of Israel, spoke to me and said, He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of the Lord. The Lord said to his prophet Amos and said to rulers, let justice roll down like a mighty stream and righteousness as well. Just a generation ago, magistrates knew this and they would punish those who were engaged in sexual wickedness. They even had things called vice squads to punish prostitution, homosexuality, Today, even the most extreme forms of perversion are celebrated, taught to school children. Magistrates stand by, refusing to punish such evil doers. But notice what the second task is of the magistrate. Look back at our text, 1 Peter 2, 14. The magistrate has a second function. And you're going to look and say, well, well what about this? What about that? The Bible is remarkably simple. This is why evangelical Bible-believing Christians are for small government because the government's job description is very small, the ruler's description. Verse 14, not only is the magistrate to punish evil, but he is also, look at verse 14, for the praise of those who do good. You know that Pastor Anderson, Pastor King, and myself Stand in awe of Pastor Dodds and his ability to alliterate anything, even a grocery list. I try, but I just don't have the intellectual or rhetorical chops that Pastor Dodds has. But today, even I, a brilliant alliteration fell in my lap. Don't expect another one for the next five years. Typically, 
governments exceed their God-given authority and their mandate. Here's their authority and their mandate. To punish lawbreakers. Here comes the alliteration. This is brilliant. To praise righteous men engaged in good works. But they add a different priority. To provide. Man, my head is hurting. That was so hard to do. They had a different priority, to provide social services, education, health, on and on ad nauseum. And if you even ask Bible-believing Christians and say, what is government supposed to do? Usually they'll very quickly, if not initially, they'll begin to use words of providing. Well, the government, I want them to provide this and this and this and this, understanding that, nope, you're way out of your lane. Look at verse 14. The magistrate is to punish and to praise. The scripture is clear and repetitive. Governments are required, the ruler is required to punish and praise, but the Bible says nothing of an obligation to provide. Now this is where many believers at this moment are jumping up and down saying, see Carl, if the magistrate is not doing their two jobs, If they're not punishing and they're not, and they're not praising righteousness and good works, if they're not punishing or praising to my satisfaction, I can disobey him and revile him and not pay my taxes. Right? Wrong. I want you to think with me about the political situation during Peter's time. As Peter writes these words, the Roman Empire was not ruled by an evangelical Christian but was under the rule of Nero, a pagan, immoral, high-taxing, openly homosexual ruler who had wed his male partner in a public ceremony. This is documented by the Roman historian Tacitus. This same Nero, who was on the throne right then in Rome, was engaged in a fierce, unyielding, persecution of Christians. Peter lived in a dictatorship, in a totalitarian government. He didn't even have a vote or any political representation. But look what Peter says to believers. He tells them they're to submit. Look at the imperative in verse 13 and 14. Notice what the active imperative is at the beginning of verse 13. To submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governor. Peter doesn't say, if you live under a specific form of government, it has to be a republic where you had a vote. Then you should probably submit to leaders if you keep agreeing with them. Peter says nothing of the sort. Now I want to tell you, Christians are our most incredibly historically clueless at this point. Christians have thrived under democracy, monarchy, dictatorship, oligarchy, republics, totalitarianism, and communism, and they're doing so today. They have submitted to premiers, kings, emperors, prime ministers, presidents, Caesars, caliphs, sultans, rajahs, czars, and shahs. Notice what Peter does not command or even countenance. Rebellion. 
He only commands submission. It's fascinating to me, some of the men who are most dogged when we come to Peter's commands to wives to submit themselves to their husband, some of the men I know who follow their wife around saying, look here, you need to submit, are the exact same men who do not want to submit to the civil magistrate. My friends, you can't have it both ways. Submission is not conditioned. Look at verse 13 and 14. And that's why it's so important that you understand who's on the throne of Rome at the moment that Peter's writing these words. Submission is not conditioned on the holiness or justice or wisdom of the ruler. Rather, rather it's a, a matter of recognizing that this ruler has authority conferred upon them by God. To respect this authority is to respect God himself. To disobey this magistrate is to disregard God's authority. This is why Peter says, and this is the key phrase in our text. Look at verse 13. This is why Peter says to submit for the Lord's sake, not the ruler's sake. Now what I want you to see too is I've I've referenced Romans 13, but I want you to go ahead and turn there. I want you to see that this isn't just Peter. And you're thinking, well, Peter, he probably stands out of the mainstream of the rest of the apostolic tradition. I want you to see that Peter is in lockstep with Paul. And then in just a moment, surprise, surprise, we're going to see where they get it. They get this notion from the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 13. It's not only Paul or Peter who tells believers to obey civil rulers, but his fellow apostle Paul. In Romans 13, Paul mentions seven reasons why all people, and especially believers, are under divine obligation to respect and obey human government. He asserts the same obligation that Peter does. Look at Romans 13.1. He says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Then he asserts seven reasons. Reason number one, the governing authorities that exist are established by God, in verse one. Reason number two, in verse two, the person who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Reason number three, also in verse two, those who oppose such authority will bring judgment on themselves. Reason number four, civil government is designed to restrain evil and is therefore not a cause of fear for good behavior but for evil. Reason number five in verse four, civil government is divinely designed to promote the good of individuals and of society. It's God's minister to you for good. Reason number six, conversely there in number four, in verse four, civil government is also divinely empowered to punish wrongdoers if necessary by capital punishment as an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And reason number seven in verse five, For believers, it's necessary to be in subjection to civil government, not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake. And after building this argument, look at verse 6 and 7. Paul tells them what action this this means they'll take. They'll pay their taxes. So where do Peter and Paul get this idea that the believers should be in subjection to the civil magistrate and pay their taxes? Look at Matthew chapter 22, because what I want to do is root this idea deeply in the person of Christ. Because the person who says, 
I have no interest in submitting to the civil ruler unless he agrees with my politics or my economics. And I think maybe even Peter and Paul may be loopy at this point. Well, your argument's not really against Peter and Paul. It's against the Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 22, pick up the narrative in verse 16. They sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. These are sent by the Pharisees saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus doesn't suggest that the tax was fair, or it would be used for good purposes. He was fully aware that Caesar claimed to be a god, and that the Jews considered Caesar's likeness on the coin to be a form of idolatry. Yet he declared unambiguously that the tax should be paid. On an earlier occasion, in Matthew 17, Jesus made it clear even as God's incarnate son, he didn't even exempt himself from this payment of taxes. And so when the argument is made today, I would obey the magistrate if they were Christian and honest and did all they're supposed to do. It ignores some clear, basic New Testament history. Paul is not writing to Christian people and telling them to be in subjection only to a Christian magistrate. He's telling believers to be in subjection to the current Roman leadership, and we know what they were like. The Roman government under which the church lived not only was thoroughly pagan, morally debauched, but despotic, oppressive, unjust, and brutal. Nevertheless, Paul and Peter make it clear that the Christian's obligation to respect and obey human government doesn't rest on it being democratic or just, but solely on it being the God-ordained means by which human society is regulated. That's why Paul makes clear in Romans 13 too, the person who resists opposes human government, resists and opposes God. In fact, Paul will later write in 1 Timothy 2 verse 2 that believers are commanded to pray for their civil rulers. And so right now, again, those who are playing mental chess are thinking, but, 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 Carl, aren't there occasions when believers have disobeyed the civil magistrate in Scripture? Yes. Obedience to the civil magistrate has a line which cannot be crossed, and it's simply this. Listen to me carefully. Don't try to create other, create other lines. If the magistrate commands the believer to disobey the moral law of God, the believer not only may, but he must disobey the civil state. Notice I didn't say if the magistrate is unwise or if he raises taxes too high or if the magistrate is wicked, then the believer may disobey. I think the magistrate is unwise most of the time. I think taxes are too high. I don't like what my tax dollars are spent on. And the magistrate is usually wicked. But that's not the same as saying the magistrate has commanded me to disobey God. 
When Paul and Peter wrote these words, 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13, the Roman Empire was not governed by a Christian conservative, nor would it be for 250 more years. And both Paul and Peter were saying, obey them, submit to them, pay your taxes to them. Think of some of the few examples in Scripture where people disobey the civil magistrate and they have the approbation of God. In Exodus chapter 1, the Hebrew midwives were commanded to murder male children. In other words, commanded to violate the moral law, commanded to murder male children who were born. They disobeyed and were blessed for it. Or in Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded to violate the first and second commandment, to bow down and worship a golden statue. They refused and were blessed for it. Look at perhaps the most egregious example. Look at Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. Through political chicanery, the entire government and nation of Babylon has been commanded to not pray to Jehovah, but only to King Darius, only to honor and worship him, according to Daniel 6, verse 7. And I want you to notice what Daniel does after this law is passed. He doesn't obey it. He engages in civil disobedience because, remember, he's being commanded to violate the moral law. That's a high bar. And so look at Daniel 6, verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, prayed and gave thanks before God, as was his custom since early days. Daniel knew about this decree. He didn't try to plead ignorance and say, oh, I didn't know that prayer had been made illegal. There's no hesitancy upon hearing of this wicked law. He went home for lunch and prayer like he'd done every other day before him. At this point, he could have done several things. He could have rushed to the king and cried out, unfair, didn't do that. He could have gotten angry and cursed his conspirators, nope. He could have staged a protest march in the streets, didn't do that. He did what he'd always done. He prayed. This crisis didn't drive him to his knees. It just highlighted his normal pattern. He was in the habit of praying three times a day, every day of the year, at his open window towards Jerusalem, 1,100 times a year. The pragmatist would have said to Daniel, Daniel, just go underground for a month, hide your piety, just put it on hold. Daniel didn't go to a hidden inner room to pray. He wouldn't pretend he was complying with a wicked law. He knew long before Christ commanded that men must confess God before men, The existence of a continued testimony was more important to Daniel than the existence of his life. He refused to make an idol of his own safety, but would worship only the Lord who holds the life of every man in his hands. Daniel viewed the means of grace, prayer, as more important than life. Daniel was used to praying in adversity and prosperity. He had prayed in busy seasons and calm seasons. He was constant. He even engages in thanksgiving. But he disobeyed this wicked command. That is the only time the believer can lawfully disobey the civil magistrate is when they command you to violate the moral law. A very simple application to us.
Right now, our nation, even and perhaps especially evangelicals, are marked by reviling, disrespect, and quick disobedience to the civil magistrate. What I want you to do is, is show you, I want to show you a better way. Look at the back of your hymnal right now to our larger catechism. It's on page 956. And I want you to see what our, our public theology, our confessional doctrine has been for what duty the believer owes the civil magistrate. On page 956, you have their larger catechism questions 127 and 128. And what we are told in larger catechism 127, we are, the question comes, what is the honor? Oh no, Carl, are you saying that I owe honor to the civil magistrate? What is the honor that inferiors? That would be you and I. We're inferiors to the civil magistrate. What is the honor that inferiors owe their superiors? The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to defense and maintenance of their persons and authority according to their several ranks and the nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love so that they may be an honor to them and their government. That's the honor that you and I owe to our magistrates. But the next question is like a bullet to the heart of contemporary evangelicals. What are the sins of inferiors against their superiors? The sins of inferiors, that would be you and I against our magistrates who God has placed over us, are all neglect of the duties required towards them, envying at, contempt of, and rebellion against their persons and places in their lawful counsels, commands, and corrections, cursing, mocking, and all such refractory and scandalous carriage as proves a shame and a dishonor to them and their government. What I would plead with you today is that when I say this, I realize this will mean going against much of evangelical culture is to mortify, disrespect, disobedience, reviling of the magistrate, and instead, learning to honor them with your speech and your actions. But then there's, that's what to put off. Let me remind you what to put on for the magistrate. I've asked, in fact, I've done a really quiet survey over the last few weeks, and I've asked when somebody will come and they'll speak in refractory and scandalous terms, to use the language of the larger catechism. They'll speak in such a way about a civil magistrate, and I'll say, just curious, do you ever pray for the governor, the president, the mayor? No. Let me encourage you not only to put off disobedience, rebellion, but to put on prayer for the magistrate. That's what we're repeatedly commanded. That's what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2. Supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks for kings and all who are in authority. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our of our Savior. Let me remind you, we have become worldly. Our response to the magistrate has not been one in, informed by Scripture. It's been one informed by worldly 
politics and a media gone mad. Let's pray together. Our Father, indeed, we have become worldly in our interactions with and our words about our rulers that you've placed over us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Enable us to curb our critiquing tongues and humbly submit to them for the Lord's sake. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.